show for you today. We have got Miss Rebecca Lowe. We have the charming and talented Richard Harris. We have Lucila Trapazzo. And if that wasn't enough, and it is, it is an amazing array of poets. We also have Misha Danduda, poet extraordinaire, cultural maven, and an incredible man and artist himself. Welcome, everyone. Welcome, Misha. Welcome, Rebecca. I am just so pleased that we've all been able to come here today. Uh, Misha, why don't you give us a few words, and we'll get Miss Rebecca right on the air. Thank you very much. It is really wonderful. Uh, it is a wonderful evening, a wonderful program. You are right. Uh, you are right. Uh, and uh, I am looking forward to... Uh, to get acquainted, uh, to get introduced to uh, those uh, wonderful poets you mentioned about. And uh, concerning Richard Harris, which uh, I would say is uh, the most famous among the uh, poets you so kindly introduced, um, I would say he's a very mature voice, uh, developed on one hand um, in the... Uh, uh, in the forms of the uh, classical uh, of the classical poetry, and on the other hand, uh, with a very strong moral dimension of uh, his uh, uh, poetical creation. Um, and what I marked, especially in, in his case, is the very elaborated and very complex poetical expression. The very uh, the very uh, peculiar uh, care he gives he dedicates to uh, to creating uh, its uh, metaphors and especially the ambition of not of not repeating words the same word at least during the during two or three verses of uh, its poem therefore his uh, uh, practically each of uh, each independent or each more or less autonomous part of his poems are really independent poems which can be read uh, as they are because of stylistic reasons but in the same time in order to understand the stylistic on one hand artistic on the second uh, um, from second point of view and 
moral on the final in the third uh, in the third way one has to read of course the whole poem in order to understand his very strong and holistic pers of uh, of uh, it uh, it was a very good idea to invite him and um, even better idea to start with him good luck well you know what we have uh, a little change of schedule we have Miss Rebecca Lowe up first, who is not only a very talented poet with a wide range of poetic treatments, but she is also a very accomplished musician. Her dulcimer work is unbelievable. Rebecca, welcome. Hi. Hello, can you hear me okay? We can hear you fine. Sounds good. If you could be a little closer to your microphone, that might be nice. Okay. Super. Super. Yes. Rebecca, let me ask you, when did you start writing? Um, oh, I've been writing um, poetry really ever since I could write. Um, probably from the age of about five or six, um, I grew up listening to poetry. My parents used to read it to me. Um, and I had an amazing teacher when I was seven who really encouraged us as well. Um, but as soon as I could, really, I've been writing poetry. <laughs> That's wonderful. Now, is there a particular arena that you like to write in? Do you write pastoral pieces? Do you write political pieces? Uh, or do you write a wide range of work? You know, I write about everything that makes me feel deeply um, so I do write um, pastoral pieces, things about the environment. Um, I do I write um, political poetry as well, um, and personal things too. You know, any, anything that inspires passion. Essentially, I I have to write about because it, it's in my head, you know, and it has to come out somehow. And that, that, that's how I absolutely. Now, sorry, go on. <laughs> I was just going to say, did you also start your musical training young as well? Uh, not really, no. I mean, I've always, I've grown up around music. Um, my parents used to, they live near um, Sydney, which is um, famous for its folk festival, which is an international folk festival. So every year we'd get involved in that, and you meet people from all over the world. And so it was quite normal to be listening to music from all different nations, and I developed an interest in all, all the different sorts of instruments and sounds as well. Um, they sent me for piano lessons, which I didn't really get on with, um, because I think you, I think everybody has an instrument that they're meant to play, um, and you have to find the sound that you love. And for me, it has always been such things like rivers and dulcimers. Um, so that's what I ended up playing. I see. Um, so do you play more than the dulcimer? Do you play other instruments as well? Yeah, I started off on a very little Russian instrument called the cymbala, which is like a child's instrument, really. Um, it's a very, very simplified zither. So I started learning that and trying to work out the chords with my left hand as well. And then I moved on to a zither, which is slightly larger, and um, a plucked sorcery. Um, but what I've always wanted to play was the dulcimer, the, the hammered dulcimer. Um, there's two different sorts. The, the dulcimer is slightly different than the hammer dulcimer. The hammer dulcimer is basically like a sort of flat, um, it's still like a harp, I guess, um, and you play it with a little hammer. And uh, 
I remember when I was really little at the festivals, um, we'd watch the Russian group particularly playing the um, cymbal on which was a huge instrument. And I just love the noise they made, you know. And so I think that's probably where it started. Um, so that's, that's my main instrument now, and I, I love it. But I kind of had to teach myself, because there's no one right here that really teaches it. So <laughs> I'm still learning. You're always still learning, aren't you, all through life, I think. Um, now, I've seen you perform your work in several different uh, online arenas. Um, do you also perform live as well, uh, pre and hopefully post-COVID? <laughs> yeah, well, I help um, a friend and I run the Talisman Spoken Word open mic, um, which normally it would be, you know, meeting face-to-face -face in a local pub. And uh, that has been fantastic. Um, I go to other open mics as well, but that's the main one that was twice a month. But obviously, over lockdown, we've not been able to do that so much um, because we can't gather. Um, we've had a couple of gatherings in the park when lockdown has been lifted enough to let sort of four or five of us meet up. Um, and I also started a, a zine, like a little um, homemade magazine as a way of just encouraging people to keep writing and of getting into print. So I, I started doing that now. I'm in my third issue of that. And that's been really fun, actually. The, the quality of stuff that people have sent through has been amazing and quite, you know, quirky and different and experimental, which is what I love. So that, that's my pet project at the moment as well, which is great. Very nice. Um, May I ask what what kind of work do you do uh, in addition to your poetry? As a living, yeah, because you can't really make money out of poetry, and I I wouldn't want to actually because I, I I think it would ruin it. Um, I do freelance writing as well and freelance editing, um, editing other people's books and um, writing for um, magazines and things like that. Um, and I was prior to um the lockdown, I was also helping as a sort of personal assistant for a friend who has MS. Um, but I've not been able to do that for a while either because she's been having to isolate. But I'm hoping I'm going to be starting that again soon, um, which would be great. Um, so I've been just doing a little bit of freelancing really mostly through lockdown. So it would be nice to sort of get back to me really, hopefully. <laughs> Very nice. Um, so is there, you know, it's it's hard to ask a poet or a painter, you know, what what's their favorite painting or what's their favorite poem? Do you have one that really strikes an important note with you you'd like to share? Uh, do you want a poem by somebody else or a poem by me? <laughs> well, a poem by yourself or a poem that you that really you feel strongly, even though it may be written by somebody else. Either way. Um, I, I like all sorts of poems. I, I've got so many favourite poems. It's almost impossible to say. Um, I can read you um, one of mine from my new collection, if that's okay. Um, that sounds good. I think it sums up um, a lot of my ideas, actually. Uh, it's a title poem from the collection called Our Father Eclipse. And... Uh, a bit of explanation first. The, the collection itself was mostly written during lockdown, and it was kind of my attempt to understand the strange world that we're living in, the strange political world, the strange economic world, um, 
with things like the global pandemic and climate change and the fear that comes about, but also kind of looking at my own face and saying, how, how can I carry on believing in, in a situation? Um, and where is that left me? So this poem this is the culmination of the collection, really. So I'll be there. It's called Our Father Eclipse. I looked for you in the light reflecting rainbows, tore open clouds to examine where the light came from, pinched through fingers and cyclopedic sharks. I looked for you in rosaries of broken promises and the chanting of prayers, are they, are they, incense spilling through clasped hands, on bended altar, in the stillness and the silence, after the storm, in the clear air, after the thunder rumbles her laugh, I find you here, not where I expected, not dancing but toiling over the dark soil, your fingers thick with clay, body bent and cloaked with darkness. Our father eclipse, father of dropouts, father of arms etched with the trail mark of needles, Father of the unloved and unlovable, our Father, who art in the hell of every aching human heart, sleeping in doorways, hanging out in alleys, shapeless as a shifting sky, who winks in a pinprick star through arid rainbows through the cruise. Our Father, eclipse of the hollow-hearted, leaden-heavy, bone-scented rain, draining shadows on the morning sun. Our Father, eclipse, our Father, not up there, but right in here, in the ship's sink, you're vomiting, beautiful, smooth, but still breathing, damaged, but still dancing, heavenly, body, mother, earth. Hello? <laughs> I Hello? was going to say, Hello. that was a lovely piece. <laughs> I, I forgot to turn my mic on. These things happen. <laughs> I, I was going <laughs> <laughs> to say, um, some poets aren't comfortable really reading aloud, but you clearly have a flair for presentation as well. Uh, obviously, you enjoy live performance poetry as well as, you know, the writing process and sharing that way. Um, have you been performing for a while? Yeah, well, the thing is, I'm actually, or at least I started off a really shy person. Um, and I was petrified of standing up in front of people. Um, but I find poetry, performance poetry is really empowering. Um, which is one of the reasons I try and encourage other people to do it too, because I think it's the only occasion where you stand up in front of a bunch of strangers and pour your heart out to them. <laughs> and <all of> that. <laughs> it's very strange. Um, but I just love it. And through the poetry, I've, I've also got into performing and playing music and singing as well, which again is something I never could have imagined doing. If you'd met me as a child, you wouldn't believe that. I'd be standing up in front of a microphone or, or on the radio or anything like that because I was, you know, an absolute shy mouth. Um, so I always say to other people, you know, that they should always be the best go because it's brilliant. 
And I love hearing other people's poems as well. Um, it's such a fantastic way of getting to know people and sharing and, and giving people a voice, you know, because quite often I think we can feel there's so much going on in the world, there's so much to get angry about, there's so much frustration um, that we feel powerless. But poetry gives us a voice and it enables us to reach out to other people um, across countries, across borders, across cultures. Um, and share our experiences, which are universal, aren't they? So, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I was, I was saying to a friend recently that there's this ironic counterpoint that on the one hand, we are all so much isolated. We're not doing most of the social things we used to do. Uh, we can't go to concerts or, or theater events or mingle with friends readily. Um, but this ironic world, here we find ourselves poets connecting through technology to, and meeting new friends and new colleagues uh, more than has happened in, you know, to, in this in time at all. It is just miraculous what's going on and how many wonderful people we've met. Misha, did you have a statement you wanted to make? Sorry? Yeah, it, it has been amazing um, to meet people from all different countries. And it surprised me because, you know, I've always seen poetry as a way of expressing myself. And I've used poetry before of activism and things like that. But it hadn't occurred to me before that poetry in itself can be a source of unity between other people. Um, but it is because the experiences that we have on a human level, you know, we all fall in love, we all want to be loved, um, people have children, people experience death, fears and mortality, all of these things are, are human experiences and they transcend borders. Um, so for me, that I suppose that's the main thing I've learned, you know, that I'm linked and connected with people all over the world, which is fantastic, you know, it's been amazing. Misha, you had a question and comment? Well, um, first of all, I would, I would like to uh, say hello and to welcome uh, Rebecca uh, in, uh, uh, in this, uh, to this episode of uh, Poets of the East. I would like to congratulate her for the complexity of her work and of uh, her talents. And uh, maybe one question I would like to kindly ask her is whether when, when creating this kind of complex performances consisting in uh, poetry, music, and uh, or plastic arts, whether she starts from literature in order to uh, generalize this or to raise the second and third dimension of the plastic art and music, or by contrary, she starts, let's say, with a melody and uh, she's inspired in writing verses uh, by the respective melody. In, in short, she's first a poet and then a musician, or by contrary. Thanks. That's a great question, actually. And thank you for comments, too. I don't really write songs. I play, I, I play and sing mostly folk songs, so I think that other people have already written. Um, I, I guess I would always see myself as a poet first, because that's absolutely my first love, and always have been. Um, but what I'm realizing is the more I do, the more connected these things are because essentially words are vibrations and music is vibration too. Um, and songs are also poetry. Um, and 
what I was saying about university experiences as well. You know, I can sing a folk song or something that's like hundreds of years old, and it still strikes a chord because the experiences that I have have all been experienced by, you know, my ancestors. Um, so, yeah, and answer to your question, I guess I, I see myself as a poet first, probably because words to me are the most magical things. Um, but music has, has always been a passion as well. So I guess my second big love. And I'm not sure you can really separate them. Rebecca, I was also going to ask um, you have a child, right? I do, a daughter. She's 12 years old, yeah. Do you <laughs> find your children, your child, um, an inspiration for some work as well? Oh, absolutely, yes. Um, my first collection, Blood and Water, a lot of that, including title poems, um, was inspired by her. Um, and a lot of the, you know, every now and again she'll come out with phrases as well, and I think, wow, that's amazing, I'd never thought of that. Um, but yes, yeah, I think the experience of being a mother and becoming a mother has probably been the most trans- transformational experience in my life. So um, yes, I have been very, very inspired by her. You know, we we seem, I know I have three children, and we seem to discover so much when we see the world mm. through their eyes. And it is yeah. so, I, I think it's such an important part of the raising of parents <laughs> that that re-seeing the world in with new eyes uh, and of course answering all those questions. <laughs> yeah. I, I like that phrase raising of parents, you know, because I think children raise us too, don't they? They they raise us to something that we weren't before. Um, because they you know, if you walk down the road with a three year old, they stop and they look at everything. They can't go past a cobweb without going, Wow or you come out of the door and they say, wow, look at the sun. And these things that we have become so used to that we don't notice anymore, um, children still notice. And, and it brings you back to that central part of yourself, doesn't it? And I think that's where the inspiration comes in, isn't it? Yes. Well, you know, we've, we've been talking for, you know, almost 20 minutes, and we've only heard one poem, Rebecca. <laughs> Share another one or two with us, please. Okay, I'm happy to. Um, let's see. I can do another one from the new collection, if you like. And if you yeah, can move I'll, a little closer to your microphone, that would be very helpful. Okay. Um, I'm going to read a poem called Ophelia, which is from the Our Father Eclipse one. Um, it was inspired by, I don't know if you recall, and he had the dust storm from Ophelia that's kind of boiling sure. overnight you wake up on the sky it's gone kind of golden so um, this is inspired by that it's called Ophelia shaking the dust from her hair thin veiled Ophelia blows in from the Azores an overnight visitor shrouding the skies the red eyed sun glowers at this unexpected turn event ghostly a street lamp switches itself off, on, off, on. A warm, soft wind, the touch of petals on skin. We wake to an antique sky, find ourselves subjects in a faded, sepia photograph, monochrome. Clouds of faded parchment on which the birds refuse to write. 
Our treads to school beneath impending dark, the weight of uncertainty. Playgrounds deserted, children driven in haste to the safety of indoors. We wonder when the yellow dust will lift or whether we will simply have to learn to live with it. A new dawn in a changed world, devoid of colour or hope. Very nice. Very nice. And uh, please, if you would, another would be wonderful. Okay. Um, let's see. I wonder whether to read you a lockdown poem or whether to read you a happy poem. Um, actually, I'll do this because this is kind of both. Um, it's a true story as well. It's called Lockdown Gospel. Pegging out washing in the yard, those sheets gently steaming in morning's exhalation. And then I hear it, quietly at first, but rising to swell. The neighbor across the alley is singing. A rich lockdown gospel rising from behind bolted doors that sings of hope of glory. Through the open window, I can see his body swaying, his whole self, body, mind, soul, absorbed in praise, exultant. His voice rings across the dark alley of fear, a victory call of freedom. You alone are my strength, my shield. You alone shall my spirit heal. I drop my washing and join in. You alone are my heart, desire and alone to worship you. My high notes harmonizing to his low ones. And for a moment, we are no longer two strangers separated by fear of contagion and death. But a brother and a sister united in hope and life. Thank you. Very nice. Very nice. Um, is there one more you'd like to read for it? I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, if, if you have another one you'd like to read, we'd, we'd be happy to hear it. Oh, okay. Um, I shall do my poem that I, I wrote it for Earth Day, um, which was last week. And uh, I guess it's one of my universal poems again. Um, and it, it brings in a lot of my love of nature too. So this is called Canticle of the Earth. Nature is my first gospel. The sound of the sea resonates symphonies and singing songs, clash of pebbles and crashing waves, teasing cliffs. The sing of salt water streaming eyes to sunrise to skies, rising from her disguise of darkness. Curling clouds curvaceous with rain, pregnant swell of birth, birth to blossom, a muted purple haze of mist that rolls in on beaten heath, the liminal place between earth and water, elemental, the sinking, sucking, tussock grass. Sway of bulrush, whisper of leaves, and slow uncurling of fern, unveiling the jeweled gardens of soft greens. If I close my eyes and really listen, I can hear the energies of the earth pulsate beneath my feet, roots that quiver and shoots that stab towards light, the blinding dawn of birth and dusk of death, and the first breath of every tender living thing. If I don't 
filled with dizzying sway of the planet spinning, in perfect motion, harmonious sun and moon. We slow, quick, quick, slow, within the profound echo. Nerves, snapses, electrons, dancing, syncopated plays to the rhythms of Earth's turning. Thank you. Beautiful. Beautiful. Um, let me ask you this. Do you, uh, do you write as a practice or do you write primarily when uh, the, the muse comes to visit and, and knocks on your door? It's a bit of both, to be honest. I mean, I, I love it best when I'm doing something I'm suddenly there's a poem in my head and I have to write it down. Um, which normally happens at the most inconvenient moments, in the morning or when I haven't got a pen or when I'm in the bath. Um, I love it. I love those moments. I mean, I think all writers live for those moments, don't they? Um, but I also, I think, um, I do I do practice, you know, because I, I think it's like um, an athlete, you know, you don't just get up and run a marathon, you have to put the work into. So I do kind of writing exercises and things when I get time. And quite often they don't turn into something, and sometimes they do. So I say it's a, it's a little bit of both, but I think you have to do the practice to get the wow moments as well, really. Um, but I just don't say those moments are the best. <laughs> well, I agree. I write every day, and I figure even if this, the, the spirit isn't upon me, it's good practice to, to yeah. write and, and to, to find the way with your sculptured words, uh, mm. some path to tell some story, to share some thought, to share some moments, emotion. Um, you've, you've read such beautiful poems. I would like to share one with you. Uh, this, uh, I have two daughters and a son, and my eldest daughter bought me a cup when she was away at college. I'm, I'm a big coffee drinker, and she bought me a cup, which I thought was a lovely gesture. Well, then later, my other daughter, when she went away to school, she bought me a cup, and my son sent me a cup too. So I make it a practice um, every morning to go through one cup, then the next cup, then the next cup, and then back. And and my wife, not to be outdone, bought me a cup too. So I cycle through these four cups over and over and over again, one, then the other, then the other. And I wrote a little poem about it. It's called Each Morning's Cup. After I'm granted a return today, I pour water from the sacred stream into the pot where coffee's brewed. I take the brown bean, the sweet, the bitter, the spicy, so like the moments of life, precious, darkly rich with flavor, brewing them with the heat of life. And each day, one by one, I drink one day from my holy oak cup and think of my darling summer. And the next morning from my Jan Hus cup, and think of my darling meadow, each wonderful gifting cup of life and love, small containers of the incredible rich brew of life's bracing flavors. Each morning, my ritual brings me just a kiss away from these lovely girls. I've had a small part in bringing them to the flavors of the richly brew of life. And cycling from one cup on one morning and the next cup on the next morning, I drink from love and love. My morning coffee and another small kiss from the rich brew of life. 
in these small gifting cups, my darling daughters. And each morning, as I lips kiss these cups, drinking the rich, deep flavor, I bless these girls, these young women, who brought such rich flavor to my little life. Well, Rebecca, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy, busy life to spend a few minutes with us here on Poets of the East. Uh, Misha, any final thoughts, sir? I would be curious whether, I don't know whether there is still time, but uh, I was very impressed, of course, by all the poems she read or she recited or uh, actually by everything she she mentioned, Uh, but mainly on that, by that performative poem when she also sung. And I was wondering if it is not too late, if we are within the schedule, whether she could eventually present another performative poem with uh, when her wonderful voice would uh, be complementary to her wonderful verses. I repeat, if she feels like, and if you, Rick, consider we still have time for this. What do you think? Absolutely. Rebecca, if you would like to do a musical poem, please sing or play or recite. Your choice. Quite an emotional moment, full of tension. I have a moment to think about it. <laughs> well, well maybe, maybe that's a little too much to ask. Um, okay, if you'd rather sorry. just read another poem, please, that, that would be lovely. Okay, okay. Um, yeah. I think I may be easier because, um, yeah, I'm not quite sure what some of I do what I'm um, Yeah. Um, I haven't done any of my political poems, so I think I'll do this one if it's all right. Um, it's called Plastic Generation. It's kind of a commentary on the sort of We've talked about the good side of online life, this is kind of the downside of online life. Um, okay. Um, this is called Plastic Generation. We are the plastic generation, disposable, malleable, molded by media manipulation, photoshopped silicon dolls, hiding for selfies, like, like, swipe, reject. We are the plastic generation, our bodies shrink wrapped, modified, commodified, mass produced, told what to think, wear, say, for every occasion. We are the plastic generation, our lives reduced to filtered Snapchat, Facebook obsession. Take a look, see how perfect we are in dead end jobs, the dead and eyes buying our way out of depression. We are the plastic generation, our lives airbrushed and photoshopped Instagram images that last for seconds. Nothing lasts. Everything is disposable. 
Nothing is perfect. Our wasted bodies line each high street like, 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 reject. Wow. That was very nice. Rebecca, thank you so much for taking some time with us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for being part of Poets of the East. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. I was lucky to hear everyone. I'm looking forward to hearing the other fantastic poets. Okay. You have a wonderful day and a good evening, okay? Oh, thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye, Rebecca. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Okay, next up, we've got Mr. Harris. Uh, do you want to say a word or two about Richard? Well, I think I have already done this uh, before Rebecca. I didn't say anything about Rebecca, but I said a lot about Richard. So I guess now uh, my two uh, a little bit uh, un, uh, unbalanced uh, uh, behaviors towards both of the poets are now balanced. I apologize before Rebecca for not saying anything about her before the show. And I have already mentioned some things about uh, Mr. Harris, which I repeat once again, uh, admire a lot as a poet and as an intellectual. Thank you, sir. And now without any further ado, Richard Harris. Ladies and gentlemen, let me welcome Mr. Richard Harries, a lovely poet, uh, a visionary, uh, who I had the great honor to hear read several times. And uh, Richard, welcome, sir. Welcome to Poets of the East. Hello. Um, hi there, everyone. Great that you're listening. Richard, I usually like to start my interviews with poets by asking them, when was it that you realized you were a writer, realized you were a poet? Did you start young? Did you start in your teen years? Uh, how did you get started? No, um, I started about 12 years ago. Um, I'd always written, I'd had to write, write reports for work, and I used to work for record labels and write sleeve notes for, for vintage CDs, people like Petula Clark and Sandy oh, Shaw wow. and Manfred, Manfred Mann. So I'd always written. Um, and I was working for a council um, towards the end of my working life. And um, we'd hired some contractors who did everything wrong. And somebody on the team, because I was the one that did most of the reports, um, asked me to turn Wordsworth's daffodils, you know, I wandered lonely as a cloud, into right, a right. piece of libelous doggerel. And I did that. And there was so much response to the comedy of this and then my boss um, went to um, Paris it was a lady and her boyfriend took her up the Eiffel Tower and went down on one knee and uh, proposed and I received a joint card from the office and I wrote the rhyme for the center of it and I had an, another explosion of people saying, wow, this is great, this is the funniest thing I've ever read, and blah, blah, blah. And so I was getting emails and texts and all sorts, and I thought, oh, I've got a little talent here. I can do something that I didn't know I could. And so I started um, writing um, poems, and I really didn't know why. Um, and at that time, we moved to the coast, 
and near us is a folk club and my wife kept telling me she wanted to go and I thought it would just be like a really appalling karaoke and um, <laughs> went and when I went there there were people doing spoken word uh, not usually their own it was classic things like Marriott Edgar and uh, you know Albert and the Lion and things like that and so the next time I went I took the few poems I'd got uh, and it just brought the house some people love them and I was asked to go to an open mic I didn't know anything about open mics and it was a music open night and I went along and then somebody that night asked me if I'd come to a, a working men's club in Hull so I went there and performed and it was mainly music and I went down really well and somebody there said would you appear at the Freedom Festival in a couple of weeks so in about eight weeks from standing on the stage for the first time I was stood in a marquee at the Freedom Festival reading my stuff and it was like a roller coaster and one of the um, organizers of the festival heard some of my things and um, asked me if I could come in and record a particular one, which is called Pirate Izzy, which is a children's one about my granddaughters. And they had this novel idea of all the phone boxes in the centre of Hull during the Freedom Festival. Um, and it's the Freedom Festival, of course, w William Wilberforce, the great anti-slave um, campaigner, comes from Hull. And um, so people went into the phone boxes and there was my voice saying pirate Izzy coming out and that all happened in about eight weeks and it's been just the same ever since really a meteoric rise obviously uh, a very strange one <laughs> I mean it's all West Yorkshire you understand this is not Vegas or anything you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah I uh, I had a, a curious starting myself uh, my first actual committed poem I had been taken very much by Native American culture. I was consumed by it. I'd read some biographies of uh, major Native American leaders, and it was it had a profound impact on me. And uh, one day in school, just a middle school, I was probably 12 or 13, the teacher asked us to write a poem about Native Americans. Well, I, I wrote something, and I, I remember it to this day. It's a really... Uh, it moved me. It's humorous and and, uh, and uh, has all these elements in it. But it really made me realize that I, I really like to write verse, and so I've I've done it uh, ever since. And uh, it led me in a curious way to my my media work as well. I was uh, back in the '70s. There were a lot of opportunities to read open mics and poetry competitions, which I still to this day find odd, but. Uh, it was from reading and then winning competitions three three weeks in a row that I was offered a radio job. Uh, did I want to write and produce a radio show? What would I do? And I, without even thinking, I, I didn't, like I said, I didn't think about it at all. Right out of my mouth, I said, well, I'm going to write a science fiction comedy show. So that's how I got started in radio and television. <laughs> yeah, great. So, you know, I've heard your wonderful work. You you have a delightful sense of humor. You write serious topics and you write humorous stuff. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about what inspires you to write or uh, do you write? Well, Go ahead. Talk a little bit about yeah, it. It's, it's, it's if I'm moved. Um, if I um, 
and made angry, joyful, happy, sad, anything that when I'm moved or perturbed or, or joyous, I can write. It's when people say to me things like, can you write about Tai Chi? Now, I'm sure Tai Chi is fascinating to people who are fascinated by it, but I'm not. And I couldn't think of anything to to, to write about that. And there were, there, were, there were various times that people have said, oh, will you do this? Now, sometimes if it's something that interests me, like, for example... I've had a few commissions to write about the World War One. Well, that moves me, as I think it should move everyone. But um, other things that I've been asked to write about that, and if I research them, there's nothing there that interests me. You know, um, uh, I mean, I was asked to write about the Battle of Belly Wardy, um, which is part of Eats, and I'd never heard of it, so I Googled it, and of course, by the time I finished reading, I was crying, so I could write. <laughs> um, um, but if it's something that I Google and then think, oh, what's that? <laughs> uh, then I, there's no point wasting my time because I won't write anything about it, you know. Yes. Yep. I, I'm always curious because I, I, um, when I was young and realized that I didn't have a chance, I, I had to write. Uh, I, you know, I looked at all the standard material. The literature says, you know, write about what you know, write, find out what topics are popular and write to those. I decided I wasn't going to do that. I was just going to write the way I like to write and what, what the muse moves me to write. But I yes, also, um, I also take it very much as a discipline and I try to write at least a couple pieces every day. Not that I'm going to use them, not that I'm going to file them, not that I'm going to ever tell anything about them, but I believe in writing every day just, just to hone my craft, you know. That's that's me. Yes. Uh, no, I don't do that. Um, there'll be there's Usually most weeks I write one or two. Uh-huh. Um, and, and sometimes I make a conscious decision, like, for example, I have a I had a... Um, male breast cancer scare and I had to go for the mammogram and for the samples and things like that and I thought no I won't write about this because if you're going through it or if your husband's just died I will upset you and then it gestated and wrote itself in my head and it was there for about eight weeks and it was like a court break the seal breaking and I had to sit down it was nearly there I had to just edit it now that has been one of my most successful poems and it is the one that caught the publisher's attention can I wave my new book at you because I'm 69 in a few days um, and um, it's my first published book and I think most people who uh, at my age are published have been published for a long time um, and I am incredibly pl- delighted that I have a real book out and it's on Amazon, it's on Barnes and Noble in America and it's out in Australia it's all over the UK so I'm really really chuffed um, and um, that was the poem that caught the publisher's attention some years ago so um, I'm really glad I wrote it and in actual fact at festivals and things like that when I do it I have people coming up every single time saying thank you because I lost my husband and that one woman lost three brothers they all developed the symptoms at the same time so they couldn't know they couldn't know about early diagnosis. And so I was really pleased I'd written it. And I'm delighted I've written it because it helps people. And it does make people more aware. I call it a tale of warning for men. But obviously I want women 
to hear it because firstly women are far more sensible usually about going to the doctor um, and secondly they asked me if I examined my nipples well of course I don't I don't see my nipples in the mirror I do now I examine them um, but um, the person that sees your nipples is your partner um, who would walk towards you in the bedroom or in the bathroom and if there was something changing they are the ones that need to hear this poem not you because you don't see down there yeah you know well, you know, you, I've heard you write, uh, read so many different pieces. Um, what, what would you like to read for us first, sir? Um, I thought I'd do a, um, a serious and sentimental one, oh, um, which people seem to love. And I'm very honored because at Hull Minster, I am asked every year to the celebration of Women Day. And I'm the token man. I'm the only man there. And that's because of this poem. Well, lovely. It's called Five Strong Women, and it's strictly true. I was left without a mother when I was young, but that is not what I want to talk about. When that happened, I found strength, hope, love, life from five amazing women. They each stood up to be counted and helped and carried me on my way. They chose to do this. My life became richer, deeper, vibrant, bearable because of these women who chose to love and help and advise and support all in so many different ways. They traveled to see me, wrote, loved, baked cakes, gave me shelter, several homes, talked to me, planned with me, loved me. I won't tell each of their stories and they are now all gone, grief or unmourned, but I loved them all. And amazingly, they loved me. For that, my gratitude and love eternal will be blessed very nice very nice and, and we did a lot of busking in the street last oh, not last year the year before last right right, um, right. Oh, and mainly, yes mainly it was musicians but i would um, sit on a bench and tell stories and read poems to kids and also i would say to passing groups of women would you like to hear a poem it's a poem written for international day of women of course they all stood there and, and i must have written, read it out a hundred times i think that summer uh, and people just loved it um and they they were aunts and um uh, my godmother and very uh, one of my friends my best mate who is still my best mate um his mum and she kind of adopted me as her fourth son um, and it was very important to me and it was a very difficult poem to write because it was at least four times that length and I thought goodness I'm bored I'm bored with this and it, I had to be excessively cruel with the editing pen and I, I, I think sometimes if you said everything you want to stop shut up because that's enough and it's the most heavily ed edited poem and it was really a lesson for me in, in, in editing um, I had uh, been to the whole truck theatre with, with uh, the playwright Rupert Creed taking classes and we were split into pairs and I had a lovely lady called Angela Needham who is no longer with us but every time I want to edit I think what would Angela say because she she was very good she cut straight to the point and said do we need to know that is that a bit interesting 
I think that bit, yeah, and and it, it, it's a marvelous editing tool to to get down to what you need to say. That was delightful. I uh, I, I want to read one of mine uh, in the same vein. It's called "Marvelous Mother of Miracles." It's a tribute to mothers. What little I knew of mothers, I was taught by my mother and her mother and the mother of my children, my dear, sweet, and sour aunts. Powerful, deeply caring, acerbic, funny, angry, sweet women each, hardworking, careworn, not fancy, yet dressed fancy, they shine. But caring for children and husbands, they glowed in their Olympian strength. Nothing left undone, nothing left to chance, Nothing beyond their power. But what I learned of mothers, I learned by your side. I have seen beauty like the sweet long look at a baby's sleeping joy. The caring hand that carries a carefully prepared spoon to a child's lip. The beauty of a mother isn't just a beautific smile. Babe in arms at the end of a long day, swaying in a rocker. It's the 2 a.m. torn from sleep, calming voice used to soothe away the scary dream. The careful hand cleaning the scraped knee. The prideful look at a report card well made. The Sunday night school project supportive voice. What I have learned of mothers while I, a father by your side, has taught me strength, caring, and beauty of character. Deep love of beauty beyond tears of grace welling from goodness, of a beauty shining like the golden sun, of grace more than silver, immaculate more than the distant moon. I have seen you holding each of our children, feed each of our children, soothe their cares, wipe their tears, nourish them from your great golden heart. I have seen an ocean of love by your side, and I pour my own love into the garden of your beauty and goodness. I lend you my strong arm and my own valiant heart. Salute your beauty and goodness and valor with each beat of my heart. I love you, mother of my children and dearest sweetheart to my life. Wonderful. Lovely. Thank you, brother. So you write some humorous stuff, too. Uh, you want to share one of those? Yes, well, I, uh, the one I'm always asked to do, I can, I have done so many times, I don't even read it. It's called, <laughs> <laughs> it's called Good Intentions. Oh, there we um, go. I know my woman well. I'm able to buy for her just swell. I know what jewellery she likes. That's courage, you say, yikes. So yesterday I went into town and I did not buy a gown. No, I saw a blouse and a stole that matched, and it is my goal to try and please my beloved wife and be thoughtful throughout life. So I did what not many men have got the courage to do, but I looked at the sizes, and I knew they'd fit my beloved one. Uh. So I did what I knew I should have done. I went inside that charity thrift shop and did buy both of these great tops. Now, this was a great inconvenience to me because I could not now afford to buy the vegetables for the tea. And in fact, I'd have to make a second trip to the shop to get enough fresh food to chop so that we could have a tea that was so good. But this I was quite prepared to do, looking forward to the praise and the appreciation that I was due. 
I got home and showed them off proudly. She to me did exclaim loudly, Oh my, just why did you buy these tops? They are complete flops. You should not have paid cash. That was rather daft and rash. Ah, Go on. Tell me why, said I with a sigh. Well, last Friday I donated them. You were with me that day when I gave them away. And last but not least of all, you have the gall to not have noticed. I, and again she did sigh, have been wearing them for the past four years. Honestly, you could drive me to tears. All I could say was, oops, and wow, kind of remember them now. And I did that at a very, very posh little village north of Hull um, called Swanland. And people were there in their rolls and the Daimlers and the Porsches. And when it came to the charity shop line, I got like 25 minutes, 25 seconds. Sorry, not 25 minutes, 25 seconds of applause and had to pause. And you've got to remember the rhythm of the poem and where you are. And so I recovered and did it. And at the end, this very natterly dressed man came over to me in an Armani suit with a Valentino tie and said, Actually, I have a very similar story. I said, oh, do you? He said, yes. May wife, I bought her a Hermes handbag and she didn't like it. It was £847. I said, that's roughly the same as four quid for carrots. Yes, okay. <laughs> so that little anecdote's almost become part of the poem because I couldn't sure. believe it. He's comparing. Sure. Saying, Who's got £847 for a handbag? Um, and anyway, so he was comparing that to me buying a few carrots and spuds, you know. Uh, <coughs> so there you go. Um, and I have a... You, YouTube channel RC Poems and it's a big internet presence. It's had 140,000 hits or something like that. No, it's been wonderful. Amazing. And um, the comedies don't do well, but the comedies do really well. You know, things like my serious poems go very well on YouTube and have six, seven thousand hits, whereas um, the comedies don't do as well. And it's something that's always puzzled me, but they like to see me waving my arms and gurning and you know, pulling faces and things like that, I, I suppose. I've got a couple of comedies in the book, um, and I was very worried about them because I didn't know whether or not they would read as well as they come over in performance. And yet people have all said they love them. I haven't had a word of criticism, but uh, well, of anything actually, but they are... are insistent that they like the comedy so in the next one uh, if i am lucky enough to get the next one which i think i will um i will have more comedy as well because it, it apparently works you know but that one always in fact i go all sorts of places and do the charity shop one is what i get you know they don't remember the title or anything but they know <laughs> what <they're laughs> well please sir read another um this is um, another comedy, and it's true. I, I don't have anything much left on my bucket list. I, I've got my book out. That was amazing. Um, and I want to be at my granddaughter's weddings, and they're sort of 11 and 12 now. And um, I was extremely fat. And so I have lost six stones. It's taken six years, and I'm really, really... really um, uh, very committed to keeping the weight off. And even in lockdown, I haven't put weight on, which I think is stunning. Bravo. Um, so Bravo. I was in a, on holiday in Malta, 
And I was feeling pretty damn good about myself because I'd lost six stone and I got my funky T-shirt and I got some shorts on and I was feeling pretty cool. And it happened. When? It's got here. When and how? A pretty, young, blonde girl seated on a bus. She smiled at me. I was flattered and pleased. She stood up, gave up her seat to the old guy. Me! It's happened. How? When? Why? And then it happened. Again. And again. And again. And I was, I was really stunned because I thought, oh, she thinks I'm a groovy young fan. And I was about 60, you know. <laughs> which, which, which to an 18-year-old is, you know, uh, very old, isn't it? I remember when I was that age, I thought 50-year-olds were vastly old, you know. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> But uh, there you go. Um, how about this one? I have to explain that I have a mild passing interest in Petula Clark. Um, this is this is since she uh, captivated me at the age of four. Because <laughs> um, Petula was, I know in America she arrived in the 60s, but she was here in the 40s. She was the child star of the war. Oh. And so um, she comes into my poems every now and then. They're not about her but she's been in my life all that time i've met her lots of times you know i was even in her dressing room at blood brothers on broadway so how's that you know wow but i just mentioned that because she does come into poems and this is eileen and her memory and eileen is my wife now eileen has a memory a formidable memory an accurate far-reaching memory and we've been together many years yes many years in fact 48 the other day I finished a jar of pickled onions. Yes, I did. I like pickled onions. Petula likes pickled onions. Yes, she said so in 1963. And still to this day, fans bring jars to concerts for her. She probably regrets making that comment, like I regret things I said so long ago. Remember, Eileen has that accurate memory. I emptied the vinegar bottle from the pickled onions into... the. Sorry, I emptied the vinegar from the pickled onions into the vinegar bottle. Eileen stood still in shock. Yes, she did. Shock. She looked at me. Oh, my God, it's happened. What has it? It's happened, she said again, stunned. What has I demanded? You, 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 you've turned into my mother. Into your mother? Me? No, that can't be. It's meant to be you that looks in the mirror and sees her, not me. In 1976, you said to her, hey, I can barely remember 1976, never mind what I said. <laughs> you said to her she was a mean old bugger, you, reusing old onion vinegar. You called her tight, you called her disgusting, complained it tasted of old onions, said you could never eat that. And now, you've done it. And then she said, I rest my case. <laughs> But I just had to explain the petula bit because she sure. just come in. Yeah, there's there's not many poems just about her, but she comes in because she's been like a th thread throughout my life. You know, um, England, she was having children's hits in the early 50s, you know, uh, daft little songs, which were hits. And then, you know, so Downtown was halfway through her hit span, you know, <laughs> where sure. you just heard about her then. Yes. Do you have one more you can read us? Yes. Shall I, shall I do a serious one? Sure. Um, and this concerns health care as well. 
Um, and um, here, um, there's a there was an allowance called disability living allowance. It's been called something else now and made even more difficult to get. And uh, all the governments have discriminated and not been fair to disabled people. Sure. Um, and um, this is called Benefit Scrounger, and it's my most watched poem on YouTube. Really? And it's true. I worked at an advice centre. We have something called the Citizens Advice Bureau. You'll call it something else, I'm sure. But... Um, um, and this is just one of my cases. And, and when I decided to write one of my cases, I was there seven years and I could have chosen a hundred terrible stories. And obviously I can't write a hundred poems because it would just get boring if I did the same thing, you know. Sure. Um, so all I've done is change the names. Benefits scrounger. Esme was a cleaner, a grafter, not well paid, became ill could not breathe easily, went to the doctor, treatment did not help, referred to the chest clinic, all this time on sick leave. Lots of tests on vastly expensive machines, diagnosed by a specialist, a great man in his field, chronic obstructive airways disease. I went to see her, applied for DLA. I was warned to wait at the door, took Esme 10 minutes to get there, holding onto the wall, slowly gasping, moving, then back to her chair, oxygen by her side. She used it all the time if she ever went out, which was rare, and her husband carried the cylinder, too heavy for her. DLA form submitted. Doctor from the benefits agent, agency attended to assess to her face. He called her a benefits scrounger. DLA refused. Statement from husband and GP ignored. Submitted the review with more statements, including the specialist's all supporting Esme. Within my letter gave notice of appeal, stated that if review failed, said I would ambulance Esme to a tribunal on camera and if, on possi if possible on TV. Review allowed, payment backdated. That was not important. Esme wanted to be believed. Esme delighted. I complained about the doctor formally. To be retrained, they said, not signed. No apology. Ten months later, Esme, the woman who could not breathe, that benefit scrounger, died. The doctor, no doubt still earning his money on top of his GP wedge for a bit of overtime. Now, who would you call a benefit scrounger? Bravo, sir. Bravo. And I, I think she'd be delighted to know that her memory, even with a different name, is uh, living on, you know. Um, and uh, so many people, again, with that say, oh, thank God, that's how I felt, that's how I was treated, how my husband was treated, how my brother was treated, and it gets worse every year. So even though it's quite an old story, um, it is still worth telling because it's still completely relevant, and it shouldn't be. Absolutely. Richard, thank you so very much for joining us. Um, let me ask you one last thing. Do you have any words of wisdom for young writers? What have you learned as a writer? How would you advise them? I would say write from your emotions. Write from things that move you. Uh, you do, it, The bit about not knowing things, you know, I mean, you can't know everything, but you can research and you can find out about things. I write quite a lot of historical things like Richard III and Henry VIII. 
and I've done a lot of research for those to make sure they're accurate because they're going on YouTube and I don't want 300 emails telling me that I got it wrong, you know. But as long as it's something you're interested in moves you right from your heart, your soul and your gut, then I don't think you can go wrong. And a lot of people say, oh, I'm not a poet. And then I challenge them because the, the one about Tai Chi, I said, you should be writing it. He said, well, I'm not a poet. I said, well, you're not till you try. And then another guy wanted, who was a really close friend, and it sounds embarrassing, but he's a fan in that he follows me around. And if I'm appearing somewhere, he comes to it, you know. So, yes, I have fans. That's amazing, isn't it? A strange concept. And um, he had this idea of writing a poem from the point of view of the virus of covid Sure. And why it was doing it. And that just did not appeal to me at all. <laughs> so he was so enthused about it. I said, you write it. You've got, it's in your gut and your heart. And he did. He's never written anything before. And he's done a very overlong piece that needs editing down. But um, not too much. Uh, but he needs some tidying, but he, he swears he'll never perform it, even if I drag him on stage. Um, and um, it's a very good piece, and it's very emotional and emotive, and it's from his soul, and that's why he's got it right. It wasn't in my soul. Um, so, um, yes, that's what I would suggest, and keep going. And when you're invited to go to places to perform, get off your backside and go. And then you meet people, and then you meet more people. And it's like spaghetti. You know, the journey I told you in eight weeks, going from standing on the folk club stage to the to the Freedom Festival. You know, and then um, the YouTube thing caught us. Thing. I, I was asked to do a film for the City of Culture as the poet of the festival, and that came out of them watching um, a, a, a gentle poem that I performed, um, and they had sent talent scouts out looking and they contacted me and said would I do that video and it's had 2,000 hits and then um, a festival at Newcastle which is about four hours away right, right up in the north um, they asked me to come and star and I, I, I did I've done two headlining spots for them um, and I said well how did you hear about me and he saw something about my granddaughters called Captain Lara and Pirate Izzy saved the Easter Bunny. And I was thinking it was going to be the breast cancer one or benefit scrounger or something significant and marvellous. And uh, uh, that silly little poem that I wrote for my granddaughters got me a really big festival gig. So you, you yeah, just keep on going, keep trying. The spaghetti will work and you'll get invited all over the place and just write with your soul. Well, then the final question, sir, how can they find you on YouTube? Um, it's If you just Google RC Poems, Arthur Richard, C for Charles Poems, no, spa no spaces, all one word, just put Google YouTube plus RC Poems, they'll find me. It's about, there's loads. Um, and that's the book. Um, it's called Awakening, and it's published by Stairwell Books, S-T-A-I-R-W-E-L, Books of York, you can find it on Amazon all over the world. You can find it on Stairwell Books. Or if you know me, just inbox me and I've got copies that I can sign. Okay. Thank you so much, Richard. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you very much. It's been lovely talking. Cheers. Likewise.
Well, Misha, that was a very good poet who told us some very lovely pieces. Funny, thoughtful, deep. Um, any thoughts on your part, sir, of what you heard? Well, I am very happy that for once in my life, I managed to tell about a certain poet uh, things that uh, he or she proved immediately uh, and totally uh, through the program uh, and through the uh, uh, through the poems he or she read. You were perfectly right, Rick. A very erudite person, a very fine intellectual, and in the same time a person with a good and complex and deep say a sense of humor because humor is not at all does not at all be uh, superficial and uh, one of the main things i appreciated and admire admired and i appreciate and admire uh, at richard harris is uh, his ability of making fun of things with a very deep spirituality a very strong uh, intellectual uh, intellectual dimension. Humor can be intellectual. Humor is able to be deep and complex. Congratulations, Richard Harris. Congratulations, Rick, for the excellent idea of inviting him today. And, you know, one of the things I thought was a really unique uh, aspect of what he was telling us, when he brought in that anecdote of delivering that oops, husband buys old clothes for wife, bringing in that story of uh, a well-to-do man who had the same problem, of course, in a different way. But I thought that was a a really lovely uh, kind of counterpoint to that. And And now we have a poet, actress, artist, painter, the most incredible Lucila, Trapazzo, what what do your what do your notes tell you about Lu- Lucila? Well, Lucila is that kind of artist. I avoid saying only poet or only plastic artist or only singer or player, which is able to surprise anyone, any moment with anything she could improvise or bring as new or uh, as an initiative, as an unexpected initiative, anytime. Because on one hand, she has so many talents, and on the other hand, she is such an erudite, such an educated person that uh, she's evolved uh, uh, perfectly to behave great within all those artistic fields. And more than this, to combine them in a very intelligent way, it is something I... Uh, perceived each time I heard her or I saw her reading or actually reciting, sometimes even singing her poetry. And uh, I think that one of the dimensions of the future of this already brilliant artist is improvisation and performance, because performers are, uh, are basically people with such a complex education, <coughs> sorry, and uh, and uh, know-how in all of those fields. I'm looking forward to hear what she prepared for this evening. Thank you, sir. And now, Ms. Lucila Tropazo. Just so that I'm sure that I have your name pronunciation correctly, Lucila Tropazo? 
Perfect. Perfect. Welcome, Lucila. How are you today? I'm uh, doing very well. Uh, it's uh, it's very nice to be here. We are so far away and yet able to be close. It's uh, incredible. It is. It is one of the miracles of technology that we can do this sort of thing. I always like to ask my writer guests, when did you start to write? When did you know you were a writer? Ah, I still don't know whether I'm a writer or not. This is... Good answer. <laughs> this has to be clear. You know, I always think I could do better. I could do better. There is something more. There is uh, Even when I publish a book, it's almost like, okay, it's still a work in progress until the last moment. Well, I started writing that I was very young. Um, even when I was at the elementary school, I wrote the plays for my class. So I was the one writing the plays that we performed at the end of the year. And um, well, my first poems were, <laughs> I was 12, 13 years old, the first time that you, that you start to like somebody, a boy, and they, they were something, of course, you can imagine how they were, uh, rhyming uh, sure. in Italian we say, pari amore, <laughs> love and heart, uh, that, um, of course, they were the very first attempt. But I never really stopped writing. Poetry, writing verses, it's something that came uh, later. It came, I was an adult after the children. I used before to do more paintings and I expressed myself with other means without using words, at least not my words. And I was still writing, but not thinking about an audience. In the moment that you know, people started to read my poems and they said to me, you should publish, you should publish. It changes. It changes the way you write. You're writing not anymore only for yourself, but there is a virtual reader. And so the communication is different. There are two channels of communication. So tell me, you, you have other arts, obviously. Painter, actor? Yes. And I started the first, the first art, if we call, we can call it like that. It has been theater. I started acting. I was 16. At 18, when I went to the university, I also uh, went to a theater school. So, in acting, embodying the words of other people was my mean of expression. And then I discovered painting. I, and I, I, I must say, I, I know my limits. Painting, even though I like painting very much, but it's uh, the weakest one, the weakest uh, uh, form of art I have. But, you know, then it started to be my own feelings, but still without words. I arrived to words slowly. I was writing at the university when, um, when I, I studied literature, and then I came to the U.S. to study cinema to take a master in uh, film and video in Washington, D.C. Mm. And while <laughs> I was, yes, <laughs> while I was at the university, it was a different kind of writing. It's uh, more academic. It's, uh, even when I was writing uh, for uh, the cinema and for the theater, it was something more detached. 
starting to write my own pieces, it's, it's something intimate. It's something painful as well, sure. cathartic, sure. more than the theater, even sure. more than the theater. And um, I forgot what I wanted to say. <laughs> I don't well, know let anymore. Me, let me follow up. Let me follow up on your acting, okay? Um, theater yes. is such a broad, broad art form from little comedy things to dramatic, serious things to political and academic things. And then, of course, there's the high art of, of ancient literature, of ancient plays. What, where, was your, where did you like it? What part of theater did you like? So I started with classical theater. In theater school, I started with classical theater. And what I liked, it was more the drama part. I was the drama queen. Oh, I like that. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> then I discovered uh, playback theater. With playback theater, it's, um, I don't know if you know it, it's a no. form of theater where people tell you their stories. It's okay, improvisation. Okay. We call that improvisation like, sometimes. No, it's, it's, uh, it's a different from improvisation. Okay. It's okay. uh, been invented by Jonathan Fox. He's um, from New York, uh, New York State. Okay. And if, if you want to find something similar, um, it's uh, psychodrama could be something okay. in that line. Okay. The playback is uh, less psychodrama. Okay. Uh, it's used very often. It can be just, you know, a spectacle, but it's also used for uh, conflict resolution, storing oh. problems when there, there oh, okay. are... Uh, okay, okay. Kind of therapeutic yeah. drama. Yes, it can be both. It's in between the therapeutic drama and the entertainment. Okay. And uh, uh, people tell you the stories, and then there are certain uh, techniques, and you can, as an actor, you reenact the stories. That was at the beginning being myself more a dramatic person, oh, yeah. persona. Yeah. <laughs> it was difficult. It was very difficult. It has been liberating. It has disco I discovered something completely different. And from I did improvisation theater for about playback for about 11 years. Wow. And uh, from there I moved slowly towards performing. What I like to do now, not necessarily with me as an actor, is uh, create little performance lessons that go between 10 minutes to half an hour, not longer. And I use less and less the words, more the feeling. And I put everything together from the music to even the art installation. They can be almost like installation, living installation pieces. Wow. my performance and um, uh, yeah this is something i like very much and very often now there are little things that i wrote myself nice. and a bit of everything that i do i found it's the most difficult thing to do in theater to make people laugh it's uh, really really difficult because particularly to make people laugh in a certain way that is not crass that is intelligent, that it's, I found it really difficult. You know, the, I have a motto with my writing. 
I want to make people think and laugh. Those two things together. Yes. I want to hear some of your poetry. We have, we've been talking 10 minutes and we haven't had a poem yet. Okay. So should I start with something strong? Anything you want to do, my dear. I'm sure every one of them will be wonderful. Okay, I will uh, go with something quite quite personal. Should I read in Italian and in English or only in English? What do you prefer? Well, why don't you read both? Okay. Something very, very, very personal is something I wrote last summer. It's about my mother. It's uh, the first time I write about my mother. Mia madre. Mia madre è seduta accanto a me dal dottore. Mia madre c'è e non c'è per davvero. Le mancano pezzi. Un giorno ha perso i denti. Poi l'udito. Ha perso un seno, un polmone, i capelli. Mia madre ha perso i treni, i bottoni. E sua madre. E l'infanzia. Un giorno mia madre ha perso un figlio. Altri li ha lasciati andare. Mia madre ha in tasca il suo nome, che un tempo contava vessilli. A un paese mia madre... È una casa che trabocca farfalle. Mia madre ha tre uccelli che tiene legati alla vita con cordoni di vario colore. Se il vento si alza, le sbattono addosso, in azzardo di volo. Mia madre ha barrette distratte e volute di fumo tra i capelli d'amianto. Mia madre ha una piega sul viso e un lucchetto. Mia madre ha un dolore e un rosario ramo piantato sul collo e un loculo vuoto tra suo padre e sua madre. Mia madre ha tre figlie e versi più belli dei miei. Mia madre ha lo specchio e mi guarda negli occhi. And now in English. My mother. My mother is sitting next to me at the doctor's. My mother is here and she's not really here. She's missing some pieces. One day she lost her teeth. Then the then her earring. She lost her breath, the lung, her hair. My mother lost the train, the buttons, and her mother, and the childhood. One day my mother lost a son. Other, she let them go. My mother holds her name in her pocket. It once was worth banners. A country has my mother and a house overflowing with butterflies. My mother has three birds. She keeps them tied to her side with cords of various colors. When the wind rises, they hit her flank in attempt of a flight. My mom has rice stone bars and smoke volutes among her asbestos hair. My mom has a crease on her face and a padlock. My mother has a pain and a rosary, a branch planted on her neck and an empty grave between her father and her mother. My mother has three daughters and better verses than mine. My mother is in the mirror and she looks me in the eyes. Beautiful. <laughs> Beautiful, beautiful. This is probably one of the most intimate one I have uh, written. 
it's uh, yeah, as I was saying, it's cathartic. <laughs> it's oh, not the easiest thing. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, yeah. I, if time permits, I'll read you one that I wrote about mothers. Yes. Oh yes, I would. I would. I, if time doesn't permit, please send it to me. Okay. Right, then, <laughs> then, my dear, I will deliver it to you. <laughs> please tell us another poem, and, and they were beautiful, by the way. Okay, this is uh, a poem which came out while I was doing uh, theater rehearsing. Um, it's a poem about women, quite strong as well. Nel cerchio di luna, canta stanotte la mia vagina, un verde canto di bimba, sussurra intorno ai fuochi, nelle alcove d'amore, sulle culle. Stanotte la mia vagina impreca, dà voce a tutte le donne, le mamme, le streghe, sorelle, tuona con calie di nanna. Poi in viola piange la mia passerina, violata di notte ancora ed ancora, nei vicoli ciechi, pretesa di fallo che oltraggio mai sazio il grande animale. Nel cerchio di luna stanotte è lucente la vulva pulsante del mondo, la fica, la fregna, involucro sacro, matrice. Stanotte si placa il lamento di upupa e croci. Si posa anche il vento. Non giaccio. Stanotte il mistero non fiora. In the circle of the moon, my vagina sings tonight. A green child's song. She whispers around the fire, in the alcove, on the cradles. Tonight. My vagina curses, speaking the voice of all women, the mothers, the witches, the sisters. She thunders with Kali and Dinanna. And then in purple she cries, my pussy, violated at night, again and again in the blind alleys. Conjure of a fallow's outrage, never stated the great animal. In the circle of the moon tonight, my vulva is shining, the pulse of the world, the cant that match, the sacred shroud, the matrix. Tonight, the upupas wail and the crosses are at peace. Even the wind settles. I rest. Tonight, the mystery inflames me. Beautiful. <laughs> Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Well, I have to respond with, let me share one of these with you. I, I think you'll like it. You've been so generous. I am honored to have had a wonderful, wonderful grandmother, a wonderful mother. I have an amazing wife uh, and I had to I had to write some small tribute to them. This is called First Gifts because I think when a child comes into this world its first gifts come from its mother. First Gifts, written in memory of Dorothy and in living honor of Linda. Yes, you welcome those babes at your breast 
you gave them from your own life's sustenance. Thought first of them, their pleasure, their pain, their need, then some other, then yourself. You brought them through the most holy, sacred gate they will ever enter, into the world and into a human life. It can be readily said, you gave them the first gifts. Before the gods at the cradle round bestowed those precious others, you clothed them in flesh, gave them their first form. What cells and man and fashion could give, you gave first. Before your gift, there was nothing, and your giving self made every other giving possible. When the first cry is heard, it calls your name. When each searching hand first reaches out, it reaches out for you. When you press those tiny lips to your breast and smell those first tender breaths, those sweet garden scents are meant for you alone. As tiny fingers first begin that long, lonely search, they search first for you. Never is this new being more beautiful than when seen with your eye. Never is the kind of blessing given that's given from your eye and your heart. No wonder the mother is so universally blessed. No wonder such special blessedness belongs first and last to mothers. She has given so much of her flesh and her heart the first gifts. Thank you. I'm a mother myself, and I must say thank you. <laughs> thank you as a woman, as a mother. And it is true. We as mothers, you know, in the moment we accept the life, in our wombs, we are opening completely. We are embracing in that moment, in the moment when the seed attaches to our uterus. That's the moment. We are already accepting the new life in us. Beautiful, thank you. Thank you so much. You're very, very welcome. Can I ask you to read another poem or two? Yes. I will uh, now read a couple of poems, more social poems. The first one, it's a very short poem and it tells just depicting the very little brush stroke one night on the Mediterranean Sea, uh, imagining one of the boats coming from Africa full of people coming towards, uh, towards Europe. In a sense, una barca di nome speranza, niente luna stanotte, il ventre vorace del mare si nutre di sogni e di carne, una barca, graziata, si tinge di ombra solcando le acque, distante il destino promesso, un volto di donna sospeso in assenza. Alle spalle sapore di casa e terra natale, spiagge sprezzanti domani. In absence, a boat 
named Hope. No moon tonight, the voracious belly of the sea nurses on dreams and flesh. The boat, forgiven, is tainted by shadows while furrowing the waters. The promised destiny is distant. A woman's face is suspended in absence. Yesterday, the taste of home and native land, these painful bitches. So this is beautiful, one. beautiful. And particularly the way they are perceived in the West uh, through TV and magazines. And uh, I must say that there are a couple of, uh, there is one, one sentence, which is in Latin. It's a Catholic formula to absolve sinners. Ah. And uh, there are a few little metaphors that remind of the figure of Christ. For who can understand it? It's not necessary to understand it. That's Catholicism. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, I come I, I come from a Catholic country. Whether I believe or not, it's a different thing. But it's uh, embedded in my culture. Me too. I was, I, was, sent, I was raised Catholic also. I was sent the first um, years of school uh, to a Catholic uh, school. So, oltre lo sguardo. Urlante la miseria di uno squarcio ha vinto alle bagioni di silenzio, somma dolente d'ogni tempo e luogo torna migrante la madre del figlio all'udibrio dei corvi crocifisso, dilaniato tra notte e giorno senza fine e inizio. Now please, Thank something you. else from my dear friend Lucilla. Ok, uh, this one talks also about more kind of social it talks about worse stuff you never don't read it it's not written but you can understand it worse and suffering abitando le strade case abbandonate alla memoria nei rotocalchi solo fotogrammi parole di distratti notiziari la sera alla tv vacuo fra suono e orpelli di coscienza in dissonanza dolce il diniego segue compassione ego absolvo te a peccati smundi beyond the gate shattering is the misery of an injury bound to libations of silence mournful sum of time and space returns the migrant mother of the sun crucified to the disdain of crowds and torn apart between night and day without ending nor beginning inhabiting streets and houses abandoned to the memories in the magazine appears only photographs or distracted words of news bulletins in the evening on tv just hollow noises conscious in dissonance with denial follows compassion Ego absolvo te a peccatis mundi. Ego absolvo te a peccatis mundi. Very nice. Very nice. Would you like to read one final one? 
Yes, and this time it's going to be a lighter one. I'm also playing. I, you made me think about playing a little bit with words. And it, it talks about, it's a play, trying to understand who am I. <laughs> so, um, Thank you so very much. <laughs> Entsorcerung, which is a German word, which means alienation, losing, loss of the self. Se sempre diventiamo ciò che in fieri siamo, io, sono io per me, ma tu, che cosa vedi? Il sé che si dipana nell'altrove. Ciò che sono si rivela nel tuo sguardo e poi non sono più. Cioè, se il me reale è quello che tu vedi, come posso essere al contempo a me presente e anche alterità, coscienza? Let's go with the English now. Entoisterung, alienation, loss of the self. If we always become what we are bound to be, I am myself for me, but you, what do you see? The self that unfolds in the elsewhere. What I am is revealed through your eyes. And then I'm not at all. I mean, if the real me is what you see, how can I be at the same time present to myself and also otherness? Oh, what a suffering, this self-consciousness. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Lucilla. It has been such a delight. I hope you've had half as much fun as I did. Oh, yes, I loved it. And it felt natural. And thank you, thank you for your wonderful way of guiding me. I was a bit scared. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, once something is being on a stage something else between side without no vicinity and but thank you you have been a wonderful host and made me feel at home thank you so misha the amazing lucila tarpazo just a remarkable poet artist actress uh just an overwhelming presence well i am I'm also, as I was saying today during our record session, I'm also almost as muted as my microphone. I mean, of course, you and me, we met a lot of, uh, a lot of excellent poets. A lot of them uh, also took part in our serial Poets of the East. Each of them with uh, their peculiar voice with their very specific expression. But Rick, I have to admit, it is not every day then I have the opportunity of listening to such a voice, to such a talent. And I am wonder whether this eloquence of her, whether this very peculiar and perfect way of putting words together comes from her quality as an actress or just as I was saying before concerning Rebecca Lowe whether the actress is the one which is inspired by the poetess Rick I think there weren't as great as these poems as the one about the mother Lucilla uh, presented uh, some 10 or 15 minutes ago. 
it it was really something unique. It is poem next to which it's very very hard to put the sign of equality. A, not a great poetess, an exceptional poetess, an exceptional artist. In this kind of moments, I feel what I'm doing is not useless. Poetry does exist, and poetry is able to stimulate what we have the best in us. Thanks for this, Rick Spisak. Molto grazie per questo, Lucilla Trapazzo. Well, my friend, I am going to say to you, based on our friendship and trust, I'm wondering, can I possibly get you to read a few poems yourself, sir? My friend, you know, I am honored to do so, and would very much, I hope, I won't be embarrassing after what Rebecca read. And if so, I apologize to you, to Rebecca, to our listeners, and to poetry all in all. I will try to put together some of my, or what I consider as being some of my best texts in order to be at least a little a kind of match for the great poems uh, read by Lucilla. Thank you very much for this challenge. Or no island. The lunatics don't follow the moonlight. They're only trying to escape the dark side of lunatics are not locked up in someone else's mind, but in their own. They didn't lose the so that no one else could ever find it. Lunatics didn't become lunatics because of the moon, but the moon was born, created, or invented, or emerged because of them being lunatics. It just didn't fit into their minds, therefore it escaped and rose in the sky, or hiding forever, they were so afraid of. I wrote this text uh, to the memory of Sid Barrett, the legendary member of uh, the Pink Floyd group. Very lovely, sir. Very lovely. Well read, too. I really appreciate it. I dedicated also to the moon. It is called feedback, headed, castrated, with amputated hands and feet, I became my own brand new, perfectly round, flawless moon flying around the world, by them, the earth. But not because of some law of universal gravitation, but in order to enjoy my missing head, sects, arms, and legs, so long ago, were still spoiling my flawlessness, in order to convince others, but first of all myself, that each one has the potential of becoming a perfectly round, perfectly armless, perfectly legless, 
perfectly headless, feckless, brand new moon, petalite of their previous existence, or being blind, but finally visible in the light of the sun for all the ones which will soon become what I already am now. Very nice. I will continue. Do we have time? Yes. Yes, go ahead. Thank you very much. I will continue with a poem. Uh, well, I have to say those two poems were written directly in English. This one I'm going to read now was written normally in Czech and then translated into English as usual by Judith Antol. Unfinishable. I am changing, not even knowing into what. I would so much like to take you with me, not even knowing where. My hands are shaking, my heart and my palm. Or maybe this heart isn't even mine. A long time ago, I stopped waiting to be enlightened. I deceived the sun. I betrayed the light for thirty and a half pieces of silver. I will keep the change, all right. <laughs> Very good. Next stop, also translated into English by Judith Antol. In the Paradise Garden, there is no smoking, no drinking, no drugs. Marys don't lose their virginity and don't give birth in stables. No names are taken in vain, especially if no one bears them. No April stealing, no snake killing, no Polish speaking, and no metro passing through. Even if it did certainly wouldn't stop. So, in any case, we should get off the next station. And to read now, something seen while Lula would have been still here. It is an unintentional replique to her poem about mother. And this is because as her poem was about humanity and maternity, this poem of mine was, is or intends to be about humanity and paternity. Wild. I wanted you. I didn't. Everybody was looking forward to your coming. I wasn't. Everybody was enthusiastic about it. I wasn't. I was glad to offer you what I had. I wasn't glad at all. Everybody was congratulating us. I didn't find any reason for it. And now it's your turn. Everybody wants it. Everybody is enthusiastic about it. Is congratulate you. Everybody is glad to offer the best they have. 
and I don't even know whether you want it, are looking forward to it, are happy and ready to give everything you have. And consider this as being a reason for enthusiasm. And that's because, just like me, I've never spoken, never been capable. I have always been afraid to say something. And what about him? Neither you nor I know. And even if we knew, we still wouldn't tell. Tell me, please, how are we with the time? It's already... It's, uh, we have about five minutes left, buddy. Is it time for last one? If you have a short one, that would be fine. Okay, yes, I will find a short one. And uh, I don't know whether it's happening to us or not but, uh, yet, uh, today, now, but... Uh, but uh, I would like to dedicate it to of the three edition uh, poems, uh, which uh, here uh, our record session. The day before you came, soap poem to a girl with golden hair. You were so beautiful, barefoot, with that long black dress, without sleeves with your long, black, striped hair, with your white, delicate, and heavenly pale face, with your long, svelte legs, with your dark, red, narrow lips, with your gentle hands and thin arms, with ice-boarding, with your passion and pain, mine, and with the heavy, squeaking silence of a world, neither mine nor yours. You were so beautiful. I even, was even afraid to look at you. If so much Norwegian fairy tales, but you knew exactly what did you come for, and so we finally got married and took the train towards north, like in that old song. But the strangest thing is, I never liked haired girls. And in our newlywed, effort for me, even this last useless puzzle. I am not Arnita, so thank you, Rick. Thank you, dear listeners, for your patience and tolerance. Thank you, my friend. As always, the erudition you bring, the insight, the experience, uh, you bring so much to this. I, I have to say I can't thank you enough, my brother, for helping make this Poets of the East the gift that it is. To, to all the wonderful poets who've joined us and all the wonderful poets who've listened in. Thank you once again, Misha, and we'll talk again soon. And now all a little best. music. A little music for our out.
And my friends, we will talk to you again next week. On behalf of myself and all the wonderful poets and my brother Misha, have a wonderful week ahead. And tune in again. Good night, Misha. Have a wonderful weekend. Good night in Eastern Europe. Have a wonderful afternoon in the United States. All the best. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.